We've heard a couple passages this morning already for the first Sunday in Advent. I want to read one more for you from the New Testament, from Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, if you can turn there, please. And uh, once you have that, go ahead and stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. And do this understanding the time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of God. And you can be seated. So for the next few weeks, as we move towards Christmas Day, Pastor Michelle and myself will be preaching from the lectionary, which is the kind of collection of scripture passages that's on a three-year cycle to move churches through the entire, uh, through the entire Bible. So we'll be, uh, the passages that you'll hear us read on Sundays and preach from uh, come from that, uh, from that lectionary uh, collection. So from this passage in Romans this morning, I want to preach from the title, Daylight in Darkness. Daylight in Darkness. Pastor Michelle already mentioned this, uh, but if you came for the 1030 service, I'm going to mention it again, that Advent is the time when we remember what it must have been like to anticipate the coming of the Messiah and the hundreds of years of God's seemingly absent self. We remember that longing and anticipation. And we also remember that we are a waiting people as well. That after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the throne in heaven, he told his disciples that he would return and renew and restore all things. So in the same way that the people of God were waiting for the Messiah's first coming, we await his second coming. And we can forget that in the kind of everyday normal life stuff that we are waiting for God to do something new, for Jesus to return. Advent is the time where we set aside some weeks to remember that we wait, that we long, that we anticipate, that we pray that our Lord Jesus would return. Amen? The readings that we heard uh, earlier, and then this one as well, remind us that for Israel, God was the world's true judge. That God was the world's true judge. Let me just review a couple of sentences for you from the passages read earlier. From Isaiah chapter 2 and 4, the prophet says, He, that is, God will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. And then in Psalm 122 and 5, There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Ancient Israel knew that their God was a judge. They knew that when they sinned, they sinned against God and that God would judge their sin. They also knew that when they were sinned against, it was 
God as judge to whom they could appeal for righteousness and justice. For the Israelites, God was the one who judged their sins of idolatry and injustice. And God was also the one to whom they appealed for judgment against their unrighteous enemies. Obviously, this notion of God as judge is not limited to ancient Israel. To say that there is a God who is a creator is on some level to acknowledge that this God is our judge. All that has been created by the creator derives its function and purpose from that creator. The creation is meant to look to the creator for the way of life that leads to flourishing. But humanity, you and I, we look away from our Creator and we look to ourselves to chart our own course, to make our own way. And in doing so, we develop ways of living, patterns of living, which ignore our Creator, which exploit the creation, and which take advantage of one another. Sin has corrupted our hearts, has turned us away from God, away from our neighbors, has turned us in on our We image bearers of this creator, God, deserve his correction, his instruction, and his judgment. The early church understood this as well. They understood that God's judgment was very real and necessary. Our passage that I just read comes from Romans, and earlier in the letter to the early church in Rome, Paul says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. But for the early church, God's justice, God's uh, judgment was most perfectly expressed on the cross. Because it was on the cross that God himself stood in for the judgment our sins deserved. And in doing so, he allowed the injustice of this world to come crashing down onto his own body. Parenthetically, there can be a perception among some of us Christians that that God's uh, judgment and justice is most seen in the Old Testament. But once you get to the New Testament, now we're dealing with the kinder, gentler God the God of grace and the God of mercy. But this idea misses the severity of the cross, the seriousness of the cross. Because it's here that we see the extent to which God is a judge. That personal sin and societal oppression have to be dealt with justly, even at the cost of God's own life. This Advent season reminds us that we await the world's righteous judge. But what about now? What about while we wait? For those early Roman Christians who looked to the cross for the summation of God's judgment, how were they supposed to live in a world that thought the cross was foolish at best and offensive at worst? What did it mean that the world looked at the cross of Jesus and simply saw one criminal among three? 
receiving their deserved judgment. While the cross looked at the very same cross and saw God's judgment accomplished by that great reversal through the sacrifice of God's innocent son. What did it mean that God's justice had been accomplished on the cross, that justification was now available to all through Christ's atoning death, but that evil and sin still exerted their destructive influence? These were the early church's questions, and if you and I are even a little bit awake in this world, in this life, they probably sound similar to our question. What does the despair in Syria mean on this side of the cross? What do the three police-involved shootings in our city this week mean on this side of the cross? What does our besetting sin, our silent addiction, what does our culturally acceptable idolatry mean on this side of the cross? How are we to live on this side of God's cruciform judgment when there remains so much evil out there and in here? So much evil that seems to demand God's justice. These are the questions asked by in-between people. By people who live after the justification of Christ's cross but before the final judgment of Christ's return. These are questions asked by people who live between the the angels announcing the empty grave and the creation itself announcing its creator's return. These are the questions asked by people who live in darkness by the promise of daylight. And it's to us, to in-between people, who Paul instructs these verses we just read. So I want to pull for us three things briefly out of Paul's language in Romans. What it looks like for us to live as though God were judge in these in-between times. And the first is this. You and I are called to understand the present time. Turn to your neighbor and say, Understand! That's mostly just to get you to wake up a little bit. Understand the present time. It seems obvious. We live in the present time. We should be experts of it. Who knows better about the present time than us, right? But as Paul points out, you and I are prone to slumber. We're prone to fall asleep. We're prone to get lulled into a kind of ignorant complacency about the circumstances around us. What does it mean to understand the present time? Well, on one level, it simply means that we are aware and awake to our circumstances. We push against the societal default of, well, Jesse, that's just how things are. Parenthetically again, this means that Christians are lifelong learners. Uh... And maybe this means that Christians read and study a little bit more than other folks. Because we're called to understand the present time. I'm getting on my soapbox right now. Okay, I'm just owning it. What books are you going to read in 2017? 
What will you do that will help yourself understand the present time? What will you do to push back the clouds and the complacency and start to settle in? I have suggestions if you need any books to read next year. In between people seek to understand their current circumstances, but Paul does not leave it here. He pushes us to another level of understanding the present moment. In verse 12, he says, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Understand the present time. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Now, Paul picks up on this metaphor of night and darkness throughout these verses. This is the time for Paul before Christ's return. It's like the last hours of the night before day breaks. Have you ever somewhere where you're on a different time zone and you don't have access to a, a watch or a, your phone and you don't know what time it is and it just seems like this night will never, ever end? This is Paul's picture for us here. And he says the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. It's dark, Paul says, and it seems as though this darkness will never end. It will last indefinitely. Understanding the present time requires faith. Faith that the night will end, that the impenetrable shadows will fade, and that daylight will actually come. This means that you and I look at our present circumstances through eyes of faith, through eyes that understand that the darkness, in light of God's eternity, is fleeting, that the darkness itself is mortal. It's as though Paul is saying that in the midst of the deepest night, Christians have been given night vision. It's our superpower. It's what we have access to that is different and distinct. Does this mean that we're immune to suffering and tragedy? Does this mean that we answer every grief and lament with a spiritual cliche? Of course not. Remember that understanding our present circumstances means that we are unflinchingly awake to the harsh realities and the pain in our world. But along with this, along with this awareness and awakeness, Christians also see through eyes of faith the daylight infiltrating the darkness. How do we do this? You and I view each of our moments, you and I view each of this world's events through the cross. We view each of our circumstances and each of the events in this world through the moment of this world's greatest despair and suffering. Through the moment of greatest injustice and humanity. We view each of our circumstances and each moment of this world's suffering through the lens of the world's greatest doubt and cynicism expressed on the cross. And we look through that lens. We look through the cross. We see through the crucifixion moment to the crucified Savior. We see Him ruling in glory from heaven. We look through the crucifixion moment And we see our salvation and our reconciliation. 
We look through the moment of crucifixion and we see, as Peter says, our living hope into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. This is what it means to understand our present circumstances. We look at our circumstances through eyes that look through the cross. And everything looks different on the other side of the cross. Paul doesn't stop with understanding, though. His focus moves to action. Living before our just God in these in-between times, in these unjust times, means more than just understanding, though that's important. We're expected to live differently as well. So the second thing Paul would have us pay attention to is that we are to put aside deeds of darkness. We see this in verse 12. There's a way of living that makes sense only in the darkness. And Paul fills this in in verse 13. Carousing, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery. It's like an ad for Las Vegas or something. There, there, there's, a, there's a way of living that makes sense in the darkness. And Paul's not trying to provide an extensive list here. It's like he's, he's providing an imaginative scene of those who use the cover of night to indulge their self-centered desires. And we don't need to linger on each one of these deeds of darkness, but it is worth asking how you and I succumb to these or to similar sinful acts. The self-centered nature of our self-gratifying sins can be justified if night is all there is and all there ever will be. But those of us who look for daylight will understand that our lives point to a God whose generosity is the very opposite of these deeds of darkness. This God is sacrificial and gracious, merciful and just. And our lives, even in the deepest, darkest night, our lives are meant to illuminate his extravagant generosity. This personal holiness is serious business for Paul. In verse 14, he writes, do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul's like, I see your sinful action. Let me raise you even thinking about it. He says, do not even think about these things, about how to gratify yourself. There's a way in which darkness tempts us to believe that my private actions are inconsequential, that they don't really matter. But again, for those of us who have been shaped by God's judgment on the cross at Calvary, there can be no equivocation about this. Because the cross is God's forever evidence that your humanity matters. That all of who you are, all of what you think, all of what you love, all of what you do, that all of this matters enough to God 
to offer himself in your place of judgment. This is how highly your creator esteems you. That a judgment that should have overcome us was instead allowed to overcome him. Those of us who have experienced the blazing light of God's grace can never succumb to the old self-centered logic of the darkness. Paul continues with his list, but the nighttime metaphor kind of sputters out a bit. And he, he includes two additional deeds of darkness, dissension and jealousy. While the other deeds that he lists have more to do with our self-centeredness, here Paul reminds the community that our life together gives evidence to the coming daylight. You and I, Community Covenant Church, cannot accept the petty divisions that are normal elsewhere. In place of dissension, We are to pursue reconciliation that honors one another's distinctions. In place of jealousy, we are meant to exhibit kindness and sympathy, to think the best of one another. We mourn with each other when things are bad. We rejoice with each other when things are good. I've said it before, Christians should give the best parties. Because our rejoicing comes from solidarity with one another. We don't just pretend to be happy for it. Come on, you know that how that works. Right? I got a promotion. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> not Christians. Not us. When, when someone's rejoicing, we are rejoicing with you. Our parties ought to be the best parties, okay? Just for the <clears throat> Some of you need to get on that. And then invite the rest of us. We understand, Paul says, our present moment through eyes of faith as we look through the cross. We set aside the old sinful logic of the night. And then one last thing. Paul says we put on armor of light. We put on armor of light. In a nighttime world, that groans under the weight of injustice and evil, within bodies that still desire sin and with minds that still bend toward idolatry, you and I need some armor, amen? I would have loved some like real deal armor the past couple weeks. <laughs> Shut everything off. We need some armor as we await for our Savior's return. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes that we need this spiritual armor to defend ourselves from the devil's schemes and from the spiritual forces of evil. In other words, we need armor that protects us against despair, against hatred, against envy. You and I need armor that is strong enough to defend us from attacks against our humanity, our race, our accent, our gender, our names. We need an armor that insulates us from these times of sarcasm, cynicism, and straight-up deception. We need an armor that is spacious enough for our hope, for our courage, for our divinely inspired dreams and visions. 
We need an armor that is not overcome by the darkness. We need an armor that stands firm in the darkness. We need an armor that moves forward with each of our halting steps of faith through the darkness. In other words, Paul says, we need armor made out of light. What does that look like? Thanks for asking. In verse 14, Paul says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our armor. That's our armor of light. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We clothe ourselves. We cover ourselves. We armor ourselves with the One of whom John wrote in his Gospel, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. We clothe ourselves, we armor ourselves with the one whom the psalmist describes in Psalm 104 as wrapping himself in light as like a garment. You see, it's not simply that we see our present moment and understand our present moment with eyes of faith as we look through the cross. It's that you and I ourselves have been covered in light, a light that could not be overcome even by the grave itself. And this light is also the world's judge. The one who accomplished God's perfect judgment on the cross for our salvation will one day return in glory to judge the world for its liberation. On that day, all that has been hidden in darkness will be revealed. Each instance of injustice and idolatry that was rationalized in the night will be exposed by the unrelenting brightness of day. Each sin, the private ones we held close and the structural ones we barely notice anymore, each of these sins will be leached of the power we gave to them. On that day, evil itself will be put on trial. On that day, sin will be sentenced to its mortal end. On that day, death will stand condemned and our ancient enemy will be cast to hell. Our Lord's righteous judgment will be proclaimed and accomplished. The judge who is also the light, the light who covers us now between the times through the night. So you and I, can look forward to the return of our righteous Lord, who is also our judge, because even now His judgment has been applied to our sin for our salvation. Even now, the coming judge who is our light fights for us, prays for us, and prepares a future for us. Even now, His Holy Spirit advocates for us in the courtroom of God's judgment. Pastor Michelle hinted at it in her prayers this morning. This life can seem like a perpetual night. The darkness can seem to cover everything. The shadows seem to encroach into every corner. You and I have placed our hope with the one who has overcome the night and who will bring about a new righteous day when everything is made new. This is what the prophet Isaiah was getting at in the verse we heard earlier. 
he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. As a result, the prophet says, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's our hope. But the promise is greater than this. Our well-placed hope is not just for one day, just for the future when our judge returns. The the next verse, the prophet says in verse 5, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now. Not one day when the judge returns. Now. The light is available to us Now, in this time and in this place, what darkness are you facing? What sin seems too great? What family dysfunction seems too overwhelming? What injustice seems too entrenched and pervasive? What darkness are you Your righteous judge will come. And he will make all things right. And until he does, until the world is set free from its groaning in this long night, you have been armored in the light that could not be overcome by the darkness. So step bravely into the darkness. Sing your way into the darkness. Dance your way into the darkness. And when you do, you will bring daylight with you. Amen? So God, we thank you that whatever sort of night this world seems to face today, whatever uh, whatever sort of Long shadows seem as though they are overcoming different ones of us in this moment. Thank you that we have a judge who has justified us. We thank you that we have an advocate who pleads our case. We thank you that the justice of God has been applied to us, that we can stand firm even here. And more than that, today we thank you that you are a light to our feet that you are a light to the path in front of us. We thank you that the light of the world did not depart the world when Jesus ascended. Thank you that the light of the world covers us even now. We thank you that we live and move and speak and talk and work and struggle and pray as children of the light who know the intimacy of our Savior with us. So we ask, We ask that you would turn up the light a little bit for us today. We know that there still is great struggle in front of us. We know there's still great wrestling and transformation that needs to happen in our own lives. We know that the work for justice in this city is long and deep. So would you turn up your light in our lives today? 
would you help us by faith to see the present moment, but to see it through the lens of the cross? Would you help us to expect and to ask and to live as though the darkness will not win? Would you help us to be uh, agents and ambassadors of your light today? So we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We ask that in these weeks leading to Christmas, you would reveal to us where we have hurried on too quickly past you, where we have not lingered long enough in prayer and meditation, where we have accepted the status quo in our neighborhood and in our own heart. Pray now with the church that you would come, Lord Jesus. That you would come uh, again to your world. And until you do, that you would come in power in our lives. That you would light us up. We would be a light like a city on the hill. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So I think one of the one of the ways you and I can experience this world is is as if the the darkness, uh, the night is is coming toward us, is is overcoming us, and there can be a tendency, whether it's a very specific instance or kind of a, a large situation in our world, there can be a tendency to feel defensive, to feel like we need to pull back. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that the cross for us is evidence once and for all that the darkness loses. That, that the nighttime ends, that this is not a conversation, this is not a debate, that there are, are moments, there are instances, there are uh, situations of great evil and injustice where it does seem like the night will end. But I want to suggest to you that the cross is for you and I evidence once and for all that the night will end. Amen? And, and if that's true, then, then you and I don't need to worry about waiting for the darkness to come to us and then to figure it out or, or for the night to get close to us. You and I are called to step in to the darkness, to step into the night. Or if it already feels like it's night, to take the next step in the midst of that. You, you and I are not passive people. You and I are not people who are sitting around waiting, wishing we had a watch that could tell us exactly when the sun is going to rise. You and I are people who have been called to step into the dark as representatives of the light. So what's the dark that's next to you today? What's the dark that has gotten too close to your heart that you need to step into with the light and maybe invite some of us to step into with the light with you? Or what is the situation of great night and darkness next to you that seems to be too much, that seems to be overwhelming or overcoming, but that you are called to step into with confidence and boldness right now? What is the dark that is next to you? Don't be passive. Don't be afraid. Look at that thing through the lens of the cross. Understand what's on the other side of it. And then with courage, with bravery, step into... You don't have to understand the whole thing right away. You don't have to know how it's all going to be 
figure it out in the end. Take one step of faith into the darkness. Amen? Amen? Amen. And so God, send us now as a brave and courageous people, as people who remember what it felt like for our lives to be overcome by darkness, but then then the light broke in. Then, then the daylight seeped underneath the door and all of a sudden there was hope and all of a sudden there was a future and all of a sudden there was a new name and a new identity. All of a sudden there was salvation. Let us remember what it's like to be encountered by the light of the world. Let us remember what it is like to, to know once and for all in the depths of our soul that the darkness that seemed like was going to overcome us, that seemed like was going to win, has lost, has been overcome by the source of all light. Help us to remember and to move forward today and this week with great courage, with great hope, with great faith that though we can't quite see where our foot's going to land, it's a little too dark, you're going to be there. You're going to be there and you're going to illuminate that step at just the right time because you've promised to never leave us or forsake us and you are the light. So we want to say yes to you today. We want to say yes, we'll be willing to take just whatever that next step is. However dark it might seem, however deep the night may seem, we want to ask that you would help us to say yes to that next step. So send us, send us, send us into this world in whatever darkness or shadow we may find this week as those who have been covered and cloaked and armored in light that can never be taken from us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen and amen. Go in peace. We'll see you on Saturday for Pat's. Bring food on Sunday.